begin by talking about the six darshanas, which means vision. The word darshana in Sanskrit, like in in India, if you have the audience of a guru or some type of holy person, it's called a darshan. People take darshan. Or if you go to see a deity in a temple, go to a temple to see the physical icon, that's also called darshan. And so it uh, comes from the Sanskrit of Drish, which means uh, to see. And so this is the verb to see. And uh, the Vedas, the oldest Vedas, like the Rig Veda, were more customers. Because they vote early and often. So, so in the earliest Vedas, thank you. Another satisfied customer. So, in the earliest Vedas, the idea was that the sages saw the truth of the Vedas, or saw the Vedic hymns, and then revealed them to humankind. So, uh, eventually there were, uh, sort of in response to Buddhism, there, in some of our books it says, it's an interesting point that, that Buddhism kind of upped the ante philosophically in India, because when there's no competition, you can sort of coast, take it easy, you know, if you're the only, uh, I don't know, hardware store in town, you don't have to work real hard or advertise, because you're just like the only hardware store in town. And let's say no one does mail order or online shopping, <laughs> like back in the good old days. So, so before Buddhism and Jainism, before these real challenges to the Vedic paradigm, uh, people didn't, I mean, there were the Upanishads, and people would debate with each other. But then, with Buddhism and their philosophical challenge, their religious and spiritual challenge, uh, philosophy kind of intensified in India. And so, eventually, the, these are all orthodox schools, in the sense they all accepted the Vedas. Some of them, some of these schools accepted the Vedas sort of nominally, like, it was almost like uh, formality, we accept the Vedas, but then they really taught something very different. But at least officially, they all accepted the authority of the Vedas. And uh, the six schools, these six schools, which are the six orthodox schools in uh, the Vedic culture, are grouped in three pairs. Uh, and, for example, the first pair we already talked about, Mimansa, or the Purva Mimansa, the earlier, again, the word Mimansa basically in Sanskrit means thinking real hard. And so there's the Purva Mimansa, or the former Mimamsa and the Uttara Mimamsa, the posterior, the later Mimamsa, called Vedanta. And as you know, as you remember, the uh, first Mimamsa, they taught that the essence of the Vedas is to perform sacrifices and go to a material heaven, in other words, the karma kanda. Just performing rituals and getting material rewards in this world, that's what the Vedas are all about. And, and Krishna actually talks about these people in chapter 2 of the Gita where he says, Nanya Dasiti Vavina, they claim there's nothing more than this. There's nothing more than going to heaven, material heaven. So Krishna, so this is the Mamsa, and of course they were opposed by the Vedanta school that taught that no, the ultimate purpose of the Vedas is knowledge, it's wisdom. And of course, the Vedanta apparatus consisted of the Upanishads, the Rama Sutras, and the Bhagavad Gita, stressing knowledge, wisdom, and so on. And so they kind of debated each other but then there was another pair, Nyaya, which is logic, and uh, Vaisheshika, sort of the uh, Indian atomism. Everything's made out of atoms. And uh, 
these two schools didn't exactly, be, I mean, they all debated everyone. Everyone debated everyone, but these two kind of went together because Vaisheshika uh, was interested in real, the real world, like this is the real world and pluralism are the opposite of, let's say, Nagarjuna, who said that everything is empty, there are no real independent things, and the Vaisheshika said, no, everything is real. Everything that has a padarga, everything that has a word for it is a real thing. And the world consists of real things. And, um, and so Nyaya kind of supplied the, the, well, the logic for this, because these Vaisheshika people were interested in analyzing the real, what they consider the real physical world. And so they were kind of the scientists at the time. One point I think we have to make clear is that um, to a great extent in the modern world, for good or evil, uh, Nyaya and Vaisheshik have been supplanted, they've been sort of replaced by modern science. And also, of course, there's a whole field of Western logic. And there are some comparisons between this Nyaya logic and, uh, say, Western logic. And, and it's interesting for people that are interested in logic. But to a great extent, if people want to know about atoms and what are real things, they sort of turn to modern physics as opposed to Vaisheshika. And uh, so these two were there, and logic kind of, and the Nyaya kind of gave the logic so that Vaisheshika people could prove what they wanted to prove about a real physical world. Then there's Yoga and Sankhya, which, uh, and the reason I put these dots in, sort of like to show correspondences, uh, is that yoga is the technique and Sankhya is the philosophy. And you may remember in Bhagavad Gita, for example, chapter 5, Krishna talks about Sankhya Yoga, Sankhya Yoga, as being two aspects of the same thing. Theory and, well, here's the theory, Sankhya, theory and practice. So the reason I put these correspondences is that, in a sense, uh, Nyaya gave sort of like the intellectual techniques so that people in Vaisheshi could, could prove what they wanted to prove. So Vaisheshika people trying to prove there's a real pluralistic physical world would use this logic. And almost everyone did. It's just like in the Mimamsa school. Uh, everyone in India kind of accepted the Mimamsa analysis of ritual. If you want a technical, precise analysis of ritual, these were your people. In terms of their ultimate worldview, people didn't buy into it for the most part because it was atheistic and uh, sort of almost anti-metaphysical. But still... Uh, they were the experts. You know, if you wanted to do a ritual, you dialed 1-800-MIMANSA. And, they, you know, like they'd come out and, like, you like you'd call people and come out and do a party for you or something. So MIMANSA people, they'd come out and put on your ritual for you. And, uh, you know, they'd drive these vans <laughs> have all the paraphernalia inside. So MIMANSA people, they sort of dominated ritual analysis. Nyaya people, everyone kind of bought into the Nyaya logic. Whatever you're trying to prove, you're trying to prove any of these schools of thought, people accepted the Nyaya people as the authorities on logic. So they were the logicians. And, uh, and also yoga. Yoga, I mean, all, as, it, as explained in the book, all kinds of people did yoga. The, the typical statue of the Buddha, he's seated in meditation. And so uh, some kind of yoga meditating, controlling the mind, and trying to reach higher consciousness in a state of peace and so on, is pretty much, everybody was did that somehow or other. That was kind of like a pan-Indian thing. And even Sankhya, I mean, well, there are six schools, but they all kind of had some wider influence. Again, 
keep in mind, Vedanta is the big winner. This is the gold medal winner in the Indian Philosophical Olympics. Because ultimately, Hinduism, in terms of its worldview, in terms of its worldview, like what's ultimately real and everything, everyone kind of, I mean, Vedanta sort of dominated Hinduism to this day. To this day it does. But now Sankhya introduced, uh, I want to talk a little bit about Sankhya. Sankhya is kind of like the best possible version of solitary confinement. Um, in a sense that, I'll explain that, and it is, it is kind of, I mean, I, I think the ultimate state that you achieve in Sankhya for me is very scary and something I would never want in a million years. I mean, I'd much rather be in Sansara than in the Sankhya, well, I'll explain why, but uh, Sankhya. So we'll talk a little bit about Sankhya and then get to yoga because yoga kind of assumes the Sankhya philosophy. The uh, one thing that's stated in the book, in the uh, Indian philosophy book, again and again, just like we talk about Buddhism, it's more psychological techniques. It's not really an attempt to ontologically, metaphysically describe the universe. Similarly, yoga's techniques. Yoga really is interested with, in the Yoga Sutras concerned with techniques. And the Yoga Sutras kind of assume that the world is something like the way it's described in Sankhya. So this is the theory and this is the practice. And, and so just as the Vimamsas came up with certain technical rules for ritual, but Vedanta gave the philosophy, Nyaya came up with technical logical rules, but Vaisheshikas kind of gave the picture of the world. And similarly, yoga was technique, and Sankhya was the philosophy behind it. So there is a kind of symmetry here. That's why I put them in order. So regarding Sankhya and solitary confinement, uh, no refunds. So, uh, the word sun in Sanskrit means together, which is uh, we have in Greek, uh, sin, like in synthesis. And then kya, kya in Sanskrit is a verb meaning to describe. So, the word sankhya also means number. In other words, it means describing together something, like how many, the quantity of something, or giving the picture of something. And so from this word sankhya, which means number, uh, you get the word sankhya, where uh, it's a derivative word, sort of reverses the vowel length, which means literally an enumeration, an enumeration. And it's an enumeration of all the real things in the world. What the sankhya people are concerned with is um, tatva. The word tat means that, tva means something like the state of, so tatva means a state of being that. It means a fundamental real thing. Like how many fundamental real things are there in the world? And ultimately, uh, what Sankhya accepted as the most fundamental tatvas or real things in the world were Prakriti and Purusha. I mean, you must have come across that somewhere in your life journey, so, in your reading. So, Prakriti means uh, matter, the, the physical world, and Purusha is the soul. And so this terminology of, of, of Prakriti and Purusha, pretty much everyone uses it. It's in the Bhagavad Gita, nature and the soul. And, um, of course, there, there's actually an older Sankhya, of which we only have traces, we don't really have it, which was theistic. There's actually an older, original Sankhya, which was theistic, but the Sankhya which became popular among certain people is atheistic. So in the theistic Sankhya, there's three real things. There's nature, the soul, and then the Purushottava, 
as in the Bhagavad Gita, a supreme person, or God, which is not in the atheistic Sankhya, obviously. So anyway, because this is atheistic, this, this Sankhya, there's no question of like devotion to a God, there's no spiritual world to go to, there's no love of God, there's nothing like that. In fact, their ultimate state, I think is kind of scary myself, and it comes from, there's a Sanskrit word, kebala, uh, which is an adjective meaning alone, solitary, exclusive, separated from everything else. That's the word kevala. And from this word kevala, there's the word kaivalya, sort of aloneness. And so the idea here is that, uh, is that the, uh, when you become freed from matter, the idea is that we are souls. We are eternal souls, but we are stuck in matter. And we even identify ourselves with matter. This is pretty much an idea which you find in many yoga schools. It's in the Bhagavad Gita. It's in Vedanta. That when Purusha, the soul, misidentifies himself or herself with Prakriti, in other words, thinking I'm the body, that this body is me, which is the Purusha, falsely thinking that I'm Prakriti, that's when all hell breaks loose. And when you, you know, go through the easy Sankhya program and realize, no, I'm really Purusha, I'm really a soul, I'm not the body, then you come to Kaivalya where you just are alone forever. But you're peaceful, because obviously no one's going to bother you, you know, no telemarketing. So, still, I mean, for me, I guess I, I, I like people, I have lots of friends, and the idea of being alone forever is not really something that I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to whip out my credit card and buy that. So, and actually, it wasn't really that successful. I mean, you probably don't have any neighbors that are Sankhites. So, it's not one of the major world religions. So the idea of being alone forever, uh, I don't know, you have to, maybe certain people might like that. You might, you know, you might go to some places like northern Idaho or it might catch on. But Well, they have like these... Uh, survivalists that want to go off the grid, like off the grid type. Anyway, so that's Sankhya. Now, one thing, one important thing to keep in mind, I want to talk about yoga. Any questions on that? Anyone want to sign up for solitary confinement? Yes? Well, it, it seems like there's not a lot of followers of Sankhya, but yoga is pretty popular. Yes. So, uh, great point. That's a great point. So what's that? They don't realize that, you know, the goal of yoga... Well, <laughs> I mean, I guess in this country, you know, only one of the eight practices of yoga are anyways. Yes, we're going to talk about, yeah, that's a very good question, which leads into our next topic, and that is yoga. So, in our books, and, and it, it will be my reluctant task to point this out, there are some mistakes <laughs> in the book. And all the humility, I'll point that out, because if there's a tendency which, uh, to assume that Patanjali, the author of the Yoga Sutras, is just, whatever it says in the Sankhya side, that's exactly what he means. And of course, that's not what he means. In general, in general, Patanjali accepts the yoga picture, as in the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna often uses the term Prakriti, Purusha, the three gunas, the three material qualities. So everybody kind of uses this language. Even, even words like Kaivalya, you'll find in the Yoga Sutras. But it's not that everybody means exactly what's meant on the Sankhya side, like you're alone forever and stuff like that. The Bhagavad Gita is highly theistic, and yet it uses Sankhya language. 
And similarly, Patanjali talks about God. He talks about the Lord, Ishwar. There's a little box in the, in the Indian philosophy book, which you all poured over. So, uh, pondered. So the idea is that Patanjali, obviously, is not simply accepting the Sankhya Karikas of Ishwar Krishna. He's not just accepting it. He's accepting the basic language of, indeed, Krishna as in the Gita, but Patanjali talks a lot about the Ishwara, the Lord. He talks about the perfection of yoga comes by devotion to the Lord. Ishwara Pranidhana, however you want to interpret the word Pranidhana, but we'll get into that. So, the Yoga Sutras. Now, this is not the... Any questions? Going, going. So, we've talked about sutras before. Sutra means thread, cognate with the English word suture like stitches. And the idea is that sutra literature, it's a kind of literature which many different schools used. So there are just as there are Vedanta sutras, there are Mimamsa sutras, there's all kinds of sutras, there are also yoga sutras. And uh, there's a sense in which yoga is uh, not simply slavishly following the Sankhya, although it uses some of the language, in some ways, it's really, as pointed out in one of our books, in the Indian philosophy book, it's really interested more in Vedanta. Because if you remember, in Vedanta, the whole idea is there's Atman, the self, and there's Brahman, the absolute, and somehow Atman is Brahman, that, you know, that very complicated little algebra, that Atman equals Brahman. And so the idea is that uh, how does Atman equal Brahman? And you have Shankara saying that they're just exactly the same, no difference whatsoever, Ramanuja and the Bhagavad Gita saying that uh, Atman is Brahman, but then as the Gita says, Krishna or God is a Parang Brahman. So there are different categories of Brahman, one and different. Everyone's Brahman, everybody's happy, but there's differences, there are different categories. There's a supreme Brahman, a supreme soul, and there's an ordinary soul. So anyway, yoga, the word yoga means link or union, so in a sense, the yoga is the practical work of linking the Atman, or the self, that means you, with the Absolute, Brahman. And so actually making that connection, making that, just like you may be part of, a, let's say you're part of a family, but if you forgot who your family is, you're, or you're estranged from your family, you're not really functioning as a member of the family. If you somehow reintegrate yourself with your family, if you, you know, do a family yoga, and reintegrate yourself with your family, then you reestablish that connection that, in a sense, was always there, genealogically or even emotionally. And so in the same way, yoga means to reestablish a connection which was already always there, namely Atman is Brahman. So that, in a very basic sense, is what yoga is about. And uh, it begins... I'll just read the first Yoga Sutras. I'll read the Sanskrit and then translate them for you. They're very interesting. Uh, just as the Vedanta, uh, actually, just as the, up here, the Mansa Sutras and the Vedanta Sutras, the Brahma Sutras, both begin with the Sanskrit word Atta, which means sort of like now, now then, like let's, now we're going to do this. Because they all assume that you have some preparation, so they all begin like, okay, now we're going to do this thing, now that you've prepared yourself. So the yoga sutras begin at the, at the yoga anushasana. Now instruction on yoga. And anushasana, so like an authoritative teaching on yoga. The word for teaching is shasanam, the same root from which you get the word shastra, which means scripture. 
authoritative explanation of something. And the word anu following means that potentially, in a sense, it's claiming that he's going to teach something which is traditional, which is coming down in a parampara, coming down from previous teachers. As in, anyway, I won't go into all the grammatical technicalities, but that's the idea. And then the second sutra is yoga chitta vritti Definition of yoga. Yoga means to stop or to check or restrain or suppress literally the turning of the mind. The turning of the mind. And uh, the idea is that the mind and consciousness is supposed to be fixed on the highest truth and when the mind turns away from the truth, turns away from reality and gets uh, sort of stuck in the quagmire of illusion, that, that's what he's talking about, vritti. Turning. We have the same word in English, by the way. Uh, the Sanskrit word he uses for turning is the root vrit, and then t, as in and the stem is vart. We still have that in English in the form of vert, as in the word invert, revert, subvert, pervert, uh, introvert, extrovert, which it means to turn. We, we still have it in English. It's an Indo-European language, vert. So invert means to turn in, revert means to turn again, and subvert, turn down, extrovert, turn outward, and so on. So that's the word that potentially is using, that, that the turning of the mind away from the truth has to be stopped. And uh, then the third one is very interesting, the third sutra. Tada drashtuk sarupayavastana. Then, uh, then, of the seer, of the seer, because we are seers, these schools of thought are called darshanas, and for the same root, we are all actually conscious beings. Our bodies are physical objects. But we are the seers. We are seeing our own bodies. We are in the sense of perceiving them. We are seeing the world. When we think that we are physical objects, like, for example, if someone wants to look sexy or wants to look beautiful or whatever... In other words, we're trying to make ourselves into objects of other people's seeing. But the point here is that don't simply, in a sense, degrade yourself. Literally, go down a grade. Don't degrade yourself by trying to be the object of someone else's seeing because you yourself are a seer. You're a conscious being. You don't merely exist to be seen by others, but you are a seer. So then Patanjali says that when the seer is firmly situated in his or her own form, their own true state. Uh, uh, that is yoga. That by, that by stopping the mind from turning away from the truth, you become fixed, you become established in your own real identity, who you really are as a spiritual being. And then number four, and that's, we'll sort of cut it there. Number four is vritti sarupyam itaratra which means literally, otherwise, otherwise, uh, you will identify with the turnings of the mind. In other words, whatever your mind, whatever scheme, you know, your mind came up with today, you identify with that. So we change identities. We have identity crises periodically, or let's say someone buys some new clothes and they sort of reinvent themselves, or they... In other words, the, it's really... Potentially saying it's all in the mind that you identify yourself with a particular material thing and your identity is shifting here and there and that's not who you really are. Who you really are is eternal and, uh, and much better than anything that you could come up with materially. 
So Patanjali says if we don't stop the turnings of the mind, we identify with these mental states, temporary mental states, instead of being established in our own real identity, which is spiritual. That's basically... So the first uh, four sutras really kind of tell what the book's about. Any questions on that? Now, uh, yoga. This is the most ashtanga. Ashta means eight, cognate with words like ocho, even English word eight. And so, and anga means parts or limbs. Eight limbs or eight part yoga. So what's interesting, uh, and you sort of do them in order. And this is the classic yoga system. Nowadays, if you go to a yoga school, you can take ashtanga yoga, something very different and uh, amazingly different. But anyway, <laughs> this, is the, this is the classical ashtanga yoga. And this is, again, even the Buddhists, there's a Yogacara school of Buddhism that, that came after Nagarjuna. The Buddhists, the Jains, all different kinds of Hindus, everybody kind of does the yoga. Everybody's doing it now. You know, it's the Ashtanga yoga. This is kind of classical yoga. It doesn't matter what your religion or philosophy is. This is sort of the technique that everybody uses. And what's interesting about it is, uh, it goes in this order, Yama, Niyama, well... The first two steps are moral. They're not physical. You don't start with a sitting posture. That's actually number three, asana. You start with moral principles before you're considered to be even ready to take your seat on the yoga mat. So, uh, I, I printed out some of the... Well, here's the Sanskrit for the... What are the yamas? Yama literally means restraint. There's sort of a, uh, an unfortunate etymology in one of our books regarding death and everything, that yama literally means death which is not true, so if you read that in the book, uh, select and delete it. What the author is referring to is that the word Yama also is a name of the god of death. Yama, or Yamaraja, is the lord of death, the god of death. In Hinduism, however, in actually the etymology, he got it backwards in the book. It's because Yam, the Sanskrit root Yam means to restrain, and because the lord of death restrains sinful people, Therefore, he's called Yama. It's not that because Yama means death. Anyway, so there's a false etymology in the book. But don't, don't sue the university. So, so Yama means restraint. So what are these restraints? They are um, nonviolence. The first restraint is you have to be nonviolent. And, uh, of course, now there's something called nonviolent communication. But... Um, so it depends on how far you want to go with what nonviolence means. But anyway, nonviolence, don't injure other people. I think it is fair to say it means don't emotionally injure people, certainly don't physically, just don't, don't hurt people. Basically, hingsa means, and you have to be in this state of mind where you're really not inclined to hurt other living beings before you practice yoga. I mean, whoever they are. So ahimsa, then satya, be honest, be truthful. Uh, like... Uh, candidates for public office. <laughs> Asteya. Asteya means uh, don't steal. Don't steal. Don't take what's not yours. Brahmacharya. Celibacy. Chastity. Uh, Aparigraha. Uh, Non-possessiveness. Don't try to possess anything. Of course, remember the Shramana movement, they even give up their clothes. So, but yogis don't have to, you know, go totally naked, but the idea is that don't be possessive. This is the first stage of yoga. This is the first stage. This is before the breathing exercises, before the sitting postures. You're supposed to do all this. Then the next one is niyama, 
it's a, it's a different kind of yama, which means something like a regulation, it's like rules and regulations. The niyamas are, uh, where do they go? Shosha, cleanliness. You have to be very clean. Uh, santosha, satisfaction. In other words, if you accept whatever you've got, whatever state you're in, whatever, if you think of Buddha meditation, Buddhist meditation, if you had time to actually read chapter 7 in the Buddhist book, did anyone read chapter, I won't ask so, don't ask, don't tell. So, anyway, it did describe in that chapter on Buddhism that, uh, it, let's say you're meditating and you're just, your nose itches, you're going crazy because your nose itches. <laughs> in Buddhist meditation, you don't scratch it. And the idea is you gradually come to understand I'm not this body, this body's not myself, I'm not that itching. And so, the idea of santosha, satisfaction, is whatever, I mean, you can carry it to absurd extremes. I mean, I think we, we, we should, like, preserve our life and health and stuff like that. I mean, you could take this to an absurd extreme and not defend yourself and protect yourself in any way. But in general, when you're meditating or when you're practicing yoga, be satisfied. It's like, you know, obviously a real yogi is not going to be in for cosmetic surgery. Or, you know, it just sort of accepts, like, whatever I am, whoever I am, whatever I've got, just somehow be satisfied. So that is itself a discipline to somehow be satisfied with whoever you are and whatever you've got, just to be satisfied with it. And then, um, talk about austerity, swadhyaya, study, study of sacred texts is part of yoga. You do that before you, again, this is all before you take your seat. You're actually studying texts like Bhagavad Gita, like Yoga Sutras and so on. And then the last one is Ishwara Pranidhanani. Uh, I'm sorry, Ishra Pranidhana, the Anane, just is, anyway, we'll go the So, devotion to the Lord, devotion to the Lord. Now, what Patanjali does, after explaining all these yamas and yamas, he explains each one of them, like what he means by it. And so, under Swadhyaya, which is one of the niyamas, which means study of sacred texts, he says, Ishta Devata, Swadhyaya, Ishta Devata Samprayoga, you will be united with the deity, the deity that you love through Swadhyaya. In other words, before, again, well, if I say this one more time, probably someone's going to walk out, but before <laughs> you even sit down on your yoga mat, okay, you're supposed to study these sacred texts which help you to be united with that form of God that somehow has attracted you. Because there are different forms of God. That form of God which somehow moves you, which attracts you, you can, some for yoga, you can be, and, when it, as far as Ishwar Pranidhana, potentially says that Samadhi is going to be the last stage of yoga. It should be the top, it's in the bottom. It means trance, you know, the highest state of meditation. Potentially says Samadhi City, the perfection of Samadhi, so there's different stages of Samadhi, comes from devotion to the Lord. So the perfection of the perfection of yoga is devotion to the Lord, or it comes from devotion to the Lord. That's Patanjali. So, uh, now, uh, any questions on that so far? If not, uh, I'm going to bring a few things regarding the uh, introducing Hinduism book. Don't kill the messenger. So, 
Um, on page 127 of that book, there are two juxtaposed sentences which I found uh, amazing. So I'm going to read them. And uh, so the first is Raja Yoga, which is basically the yoga that potentially is teaching, or Stanga Yoga. Raja Yoga is fundamentally non-theistic. Fundamentally, that means no God. In the very next sentence, it asserts the existence of Ishwara, the Lord. I thought that was outstanding. There it is. Anyway, uh, next time I'm uh, on the Jay Leno show, I'll bring that up. So, Raja Yoga is fundamentally non-theistic. It asserts the existence of Ishwara, the Lord. And then the Lord is next described as it, although in Sanskrit it's actually a masculine word. And then it has been venerable since antiquity. That's Hillary's, anyway, it. So it's non-theistic, it asserts the Lord, and the Lord is it, is venerable. Moving right along. Uh, Hillary, I think, uh, Rodriguez, Professor Rodriguez, tends to... There's a, there's a real confusion here about the philosophy of the Yoga Sutras, and I'll explain that. On page 128, he says, in samadhi, in the state of samadhi, this trance state of yoga, uh, an object, that means a physical, the object of your consciousness, whatever you're thinking about or perceiving, the object ceases to be different from the observing consciousness. This is something, I think, even in the Indian philosophy book, where you reach a state where there's no separation between your consciousness and that which you're conscious of. So it's just like one thing. Uh, not exactly. Because the yoga system is not that, because again, it's based on a sort of realistic view of the physical world. So how could you say that there's no difference between, let's say, this chair and my awareness of the chair? And how could I say there's no difference? That's not a very realistic view of the material world. And in fact, uh, to prove this point, I uh, will read to you Yoga Sutra 3.3, uh, which says, which explains how Professor Rigas kind of got this wrong. Tadeva arata matra nirpasam sarupa shunya eva samadhi. And here's a translation from uh, Barbara Stoller Miller, who passed away but taught at Columbia University in New York, which does not have a great football team. But anyway, she translated the Yoga Sutras and also the Bhagavad Gita. And here's her translation, so you won't think I'm just uh, spinning this. Pure contemplation pure is meditation that illumines the object alone as if the subject were devoid of intrinsic form. In other words, in pure contemplation, whatever you're conscious of, like let's say I'm conscious, I'm meditating on this paper here. So my consciousness illumines this object alone. There's no baggage. It's not like uh, I, I'm in some weird emotional state because I had a fight with someone earlier today or I'm lusting after that paper because I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I collect paper or whatever. In other words, I'm not, bringing, I'm not bringing any emotional baggage to my awareness. I'm just purely conscious of the paper. So, but it's not that my consciousness and the paper are exactly the same thing because what the word that potentially uses as, is eva, which means as if. 
when you're in pure consciousness, you perceive an object as if, as if uh, you had no particular form or particular identity that you're imposing. In other words, you're not imposing your identity on the object, you're just perceiving it. But potentially it doesn't say that your awareness is the same thing as the object, as it says in our, actually both of our books. But rather, he says, it's as if that's the case, because of course they are different. Your consciousness is your consciousness. In this, in this paper, which I'm now trying to bring to your awareness, this paper is different than your head, to put it simply. But if you're seeing it purely with no emotional, intellectual baggage on your part, just pure awareness, it's as if the cognition had no, you know, there's no identity of yours that's getting mixed up in the cognition. As if. So, again, confusing psychology with ontology. Then, uh, another quote from that same page 128 of Introducing Hinduism, recognizing the intrinsic emptiness, the emptiness of all manifest phenomena. Nagarjuna would be proud of this statement. Recognizing the intrinsic emptiness of all manifest phenomena, all the things in the world you can see, including itself, booty, intelligence, then seizes its manifestation. Uh, no, that's not actually what the yoga... The yoga sutras are not teaching that all physical things are empty. I mean, potentially it's not Nagarjuna. These are different people. They probably never met each other. And what Patanjali actually says, for example, at 1.9, is Shabdhyanuprati Vastu Shunyo Vikalpa. There is an illusory state, which he calls Vikalpa, in which uh, literally your awareness falls upon something. It's following a word. I'll explain what this means, so don't, uh, don't worry. Okay, let me just give an example. Start an example. Unicorn. There's a word. There's an English word, unicorn. Una meaning one, like uno, you know. And corn, horn, actually. Like cuerno in Spanish. Cuerno means horn, or cuerno in Latin. So, unicorn means a one-horned creature. Now, there's a word. There it is. But, but Pani says, this is vastu shunya. Shunya means it's empty of an actual physical object. There is a word. Shabda. There's a word, unicorn. And there is a gyan. There is a state of awareness which follows that word, which, which sort of molds, you know, takes its cue from the word. So if I say, unicorn, you know, you can all think of something. Probably a white, horse-like creature with a... Rainbow. Rainbow. Okay. <laughs> Let's do the rainbow. Sort of a twirling corn. Spiral corn. So, corn... However, there's no buster, there's no real thing. That's what Patanjali is talking about when he says emptiness. Words that do not correspond to any real thing. If the word does correspond to a real thing, he doesn't use the word shunya. Like if I say paper, there's a real buster, there's a real physical thing that corresponds to the word. However, Professor Rodriguez says, recognizing the intrinsic emptiness of all manifest phenomena, that's not what Patanjali is teaching. So I... Uh, uh, then, um, now here's the last one I want to say about uh, uh, Professor Rodriguez is on page, again, page 128. That was, a, I guess, a bad page for him. It's a bad page day. Potentially ends the Yoga Sutras, 434, by saying that pure perceptual power, Chit Shakti, 
purpose of supreme consciousness abides alone in its true nature when the qualities of material phenomenon recognized as intrinsically empty are aborted. Are aborted. What does that mean? Um, well, Chit Shakti, the Shakti, the real power of consciousness comes out when you understand that the qualities, the gunas, the qualities of material nature are intrinsically empty. Uh, now, he somewhat mistranslated the last verse of the Yoga Sutras. So I want to do it more literally. Uh, when you read a lot of Indology books, I, I don't want to be, sound arrogant, but when you read a lot of these books on Hinduism, most of the people who write books on Hinduism are not really uh, completely proficient in Sanskrit. And so, I know myself, I read all the time, like, this Sanskrit word literally means that, and most of the time it doesn't. But anyway, so what the last verse in the Yoga Sutras actually says is, Purusharata uh, Shunyanam Gunana, and this is what Hilary Rodriguez is paraphrasing, is that when you literally sort of counter uh, counter the flow or counter the, the influence of qualities which are empty of meaning or, 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 or empty of purpose for the soul. In other words, the material qualities like, like the gunas, material goodness, material passion, material ignorance, they really exist as qualities. In fact, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says that there is nothing in the world that is free of these qualities. So according to Sankhya, according to Sankhya, which potentially more or less follows, according to Bhagavad Gita, the qualities are really there, but they're not the real purpose of life. In other words, the purpose of life is not to get yourself all worked up and passionate or to, you know, achieve all kinds of passionate goals. The purpose of life is not even to be a, a materially good person. The purpose of life is ultimately to be enlightened and achieve a higher spiritual goodness. So, potentially saying that consciousness realizes its real power, its real potential, when uh, it goes beyond qualities which are void of any ultimate purpose for the soul. It doesn't mean the qualities don't exist. Uh, so they're not intrinsic. Again, uh, it's interesting because Julio Rodriguez keeps putting these Buddhist categories. So like Nagarjuna's Buddhist thinking into the Yoga Sutras when in fact the Yoga Sutras are really following Sankhya, which are saying something else. And so, uh, any questions on that? We have a few more minutes. Let's see what I can do. What can I come up with? Remaining time. Um, do I have anything else? Any more material? I'm out of material. So, no questions on anything of that. And, uh, do I have anything else on the board? I think, I think that's kind of it. The yoga system. Well, no other questions. I guess we'll just end early. Yeah. Sorry, someone corrected. Uh, yeah. Please. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, I'll do just one more minute and then, uh, you know, I... So, the yoga system starts with these moral procedures. Yama niyama. You have to get yourself morally in order. Then you do the sitting and the breathing exercises. And then the pratyahara. Pratyahara literally means uh, sort of uh, counter perception or, or withdrawing. In other words, our senses are going out into the world. We're seeing, hearing, touching, tasting things. 
when you take your consciousness and withdraw it and focus it within yourself, that's pratyahara. And then, dharana literally means hanging on, just hold on. Because your senses want to rush back out. So, you withdraw your consciousness within you, then you sort of hold it there. You, you hold it there. That's dharana. And then jhana, once you've really got it fixed there, then you can meditate. When your meditation becomes advanced, it becomes samadhi. You're not simply practicing meditation. You're really absorbed in what you're meditating on. That's samadhi. And again, potentially says the perfection of samadhi, the perfection of the perfection of yoga, is devotion to the Lord. Be fixed on the Lord. So, if there's no other questions, I, I guess we'll end here. <laughs>